Now let's turn together in our Bibles to the first chapter of the book of Ephesians, and our focus this morning will be on verses 5 and 6, although I would like to begin at verse 1 and read through verse 14. Actually, verses 3 through 14 form one sentence in the Greek New Testament. And as you're turning there, let me remind you that we begin Luke's gospel, Lord willing, next week. And I would appreciate your prayers and also your investigation of those opening chapters. If you're going to benefit, you need to be in that section of Scripture so that you will hear it and imbibe it and love it and know it and take it to heart. So your preparation in advance through the prayers for your ministers and also your reading of the text is extraordinarily important. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning to read at verse 1, let us stand for the reading of God's word. Our Father, as we turn to this text, help us now to understand that it is given by divine inspiration. Work it deep down within the hearts of your people and help us, Heavenly Father, to understand more deeply what it means that we are adopted into your family by the grace of God, through the work of Christ alone. And if there are those here who presently do not know you and are not children of God, but are children of wrath, even as others, we pray that this might be the day in which they are drawn by your sovereign work out of darkness into light, and that you will grant them saving faith to trust in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Ephesians 1, beginning with verse 1, this is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, what is your greatest privilege as a Christian? Is it forgiveness of sins? Is it freedom from guilt? Is it justification, your acceptance through the merit of Christ? 
Who can measure such privileges as these? What must God be like to have done those things for us? But there is one privilege that is yet higher, one privilege that is at the pinnacle of those that we have mentioned. The greatest privilege of the Christian is to be called a son or a daughter of the living God. And my purpose this morning is to help you to marvel, to wonder at the grace of adoption, to help you contemplate and appreciate your privileges as a child of God as we expound the text together. Let's begin by noticing the grace of adoption. We sinners want to hold on to something, something that we can claim for our own, that we merit, that we earn, that we produce, that we deserve. But grace is unmerited favor to those who deserved God's infinite displeasure, to those who could never earn his favor. Never. Is that you? It certainly is me. You and I know that adoption is by grace when we consider our original lineage. The popular view is that everyone is a child of God. The fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man is an idea deep in the American psyche. But the Bible teaches that our fall in Adam ruined us. If we were by nature sons of God, there would be no need of redemption, no need of Christ coming into the world, and no need of our adoption by grace. God, in his purpose, looked upon us in our sins, speeding to destruction, and sent his son to rescue us, and that's what we mean by grace. The text is explicit about this. Our adoption was according, verse 5 tells us, to the good pleasure of his will. God's good pleasure means that his choice of sinners to be redeemed and adopted is totally unconstrained. It had nothing to do with anything that was within me or within you. God loved us because he loved us. He did not have to save us. He did not have to redeem us. This we have in the beloved in union with Jesus Christ. Now grace is underscored by the predestinarian language of the text. All is traceable to his will, his sovereign good pleasure, to his predestinating love. And so, looking again at these verses 5 and 6, we read, He predestined us for adoption. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Now, in some translations, in love actually goes with verse 4. Your ESV is correct when it puts in love with verse 5, reflecting the thought of Paul in Romans 8 that those whom he foreknew, that is, put his love upon beforehand, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so predestination and love should be spoken of in the same breath. Predestination is all about the love of God. To fear predestination is to fear the love of God. And yet still, often, I hear Christians object to this truth, this biblical truth of God's election and predestination. Let me ask you this question. Do you object to being redeemed? Do you? Do you object to being called? Do you? Do you object to being justified? Do you object to being adopted into his family? Then how can you object to God's planning to do it? 
That's what predestination means. We act as if the reason for God's existence is to convey sovereign liberty on man, and we refuse to allow God to exercise his own free will. But thank God, he sits in the heavens, he does what he will, and he does this for us lost sinners, or we would have been lost forever. Predestination, Christian, means that God loves you, He has always loved you. He always will love you. There has never been a time in which he did not have his love placed upon you. There will never be anything in this world or anything in the world to come that can remove his love from you. A number of years ago, I was listening to Henry Mahan's reflections. Henry Mahan is a Calvinistic Baptist minister for whom I have great respect. He was reflecting on a ministry of 82 years. Perhaps it was his birthday of 82 years. I can't recall. But he told the story of Dr. Magruder. Dr. Magruder's father was a preacher, and when Dr. Magruder's son was a a young man, he went to his father's study. His father was earnestly working on the text of the Bible to understand it and unpack it. And he told his father that he had come to a text that he did not understand. Well, son, what is that text? Well, it's this one, he said. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. I don't understand how God is love and could hate Esau. His father answered him this way. Son, when you learn God's word and the holiness of God, you'll understand how God can hate Esau. But son, the mystery of salvation is that you can't understand how God could love Jacob. Now that's true. The Christian can never say, there was a time when God began to love me. The Christian can never say, there will be a time when God will not love me. And so is there someone here and you're questioning, can God love me? He loves the unlovely. He sent his son for the ungodly. God demonstrated his own love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Mr. Spurgeon made this comment. The only reason why one man is saved and not another lies not in any sense in the man saved, but in God's bosom. Stand at the foot of the cross, ye merit mongers, ye that delight in your own works, and answer this question. Do you think that the Lord of life and glory could have been brought down from heaven, could have been fashioned like a man, and have been led to die through any merit of yours? Shall these sacred veins be opened with any lancet less sharp than his own infinite love? Well, the answer to that question is no. Only the infinite love of God could bring the Savior into the world. And so, my friend, if you and I are saved, we must be saved by grace. Because our fall in Adam did not just cripple us. It did not just hurt us. It did not simply disable us. Our fall in Adam ruined us. We were lost and ruined in the fall. And only one voice can bring the dead to life, and that is the voice of God Almighty in His gospel. It is all of grace from first to last. Do you marvel in it? Do you glory in it? Do you see the wonder of it? I'm saved. I'm saved by grace and grace alone. I contribute nothing to my acceptance with God and nothing to my adoption into his family. That's what he means in verse 5 when he says he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose 
of his will. The second thing that we see as we move along is the background of adoption, the background of adoption. Now, there's a fundamental division between mankind into two groups. There are those who are children of God, and there are those who are not children of God. Those who are children of God are children through adoption into God's family through the work of Christ. Now, Paul the Apostle is the only writer in the New Testament that uses the term adoption, weathesia. It is used by the Apostle Paul in Galatians, Romans, and Ephesians a total of five times. Now, the idea and the concept is found in other places in Paul and perhaps other places in the New Testament, but the term itself is used only five times, only by Paul, only in those books. Now, there undoubtedly is Old Testament backdrop to adoption, but what I want to focus on this morning is this, that Paul seems to be utilizing familiar Roman law regarding adoption in the ancient world to illustrate adoption of sinners into God's family. There was a legal historian a number of years back, his name is Lyle, who wrote a very, very fine book about adoption in the Roman world and how the Apostle Paul made use of this concept in order to present the truth of God in this epistle and others. Now, using adoption in Galatians, Romans, Ephesians, remember, all of those were Roman provinces. And so he is speaking to those who are in Roman provinces, who were familiar with the law of Rome, and he would have them to remember these things. In the ancient system of adoption in the Roman world, the adoptee was taken from a previous state and placed in a new one. His old debts were canceled. The father controlled now the property, the relationships, the rights of the adoptee, and he supports and maintains them. And perhaps most interestingly, in the ancient Roman world, when one was adopted into a Roman patrician's family, it was for the good of the father, the adopter, primarily, not primarily for the son. Now, all of those things are true of us in a great and more glorious way in regard to the gospel. We have been taken from a previous state of darkness and death, and we have been placed into a new one by the grace of God, have we not? Your old debts, every single one of them, have been paid by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, have they not? He now is Lord of your life. He controls your property, relationships, your rights, and he supports and he maintains you as his child. But what about this this adoption for the good of the adopter? Well, let me stress this. Adoption certainly is for your good, but it is for the glory of the Father who adopted you. In a more grand and wondrous manner, God adopts us for his own glory and for his own praise. Here we are reminded that the benefits of adoption are not for ourselves independently of the one who adopts us, but for God's own glory and God's own praise so that you adopted into his family are now trophies of grace through whom he is displaying the wonder of his love the greatness of his mercy the grandeur of his character and what grace is all about it's for the glory of the adopter as well as for your good that you are adopted into his family thirdly Let's think together about the privileges of adoption, the privileges of adoption, and certainly much could be said here. 
go to any good systematic theology and you will find the sorts of things that I'm going to point out right now, but all of them, if it's a good systematic theology after all, are derived right from the Word of God. What are the privileges that you have as sons and daughters of the living God? Let me list a few of them for you. First, you have a new name. In Ephesians 2.3, we were told that once we were children of wrath, sons of disobedience. But now there has been a transition from wrath to grace. We are adopted into God's family. His name is now upon you. You are children of the Heavenly Father. You are called by the name of His Son. You have the privilege as well as bear the responsibility of having the name Christian. Because you now have a new name as you were adopted into the family of God. Not only that, you have a new relationship with God. We were under his condemnation. Guilty, guilty, guilty. What could you do under the guilt and wrath to which you were exposed? But the judge had a son who paid your debt, and then the judge did the most remarkable thing. The judge himself adopted you as his own A privilege that brings with it joyful duty, focusing upon God's fatherly care of me and also serving with my whole heart, my heavenly father who has done this thing for me. But here's another privilege. You have a new relationship with God's people. God says his church is necessary. And as God has treated us, so we now treat and love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Has he treated me as a son? As he treated you as a daughter, then you treat others as brothers and sisters in Christ because you are now a part of the people of God. But also you have a new nature, a new nature. Now Paul dwells on adoption primarily from the standpoint of the legal proceeding of adoption rather than the change of nature. John, when he speaks of sonship, as a, he speaks of a change of nature. They're not precisely the same, but they certainly are related. So putting Paul and John together, just think, human adoption is a wonderful thing, is it not? But human adoption cannot accomplish a change of nature. Natural birth cannot accomplish this either. But God adopts us legally, forensically, into his family, and also changes our nature. So he gives to us a new heart, having removed from us a heart of stone. He writes the law of God upon our hearts. We now have new longings and we have new desires that once were foreign to us. This God has done. Has he done that for you? Well, we also, according to the word of God, have a new spirit, the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, if you will compare on your own Galatians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, and Romans chapter 8, 15 and 16, you will find that in Galatians, it is the Spirit who cries out in intimacy, Abba, Father. But in Romans 8, we are the ones who are said to cry out, Abba, Father. And so because of the Spirit who indwells us, the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father, in intimacy to God. And we also cry from the depths of our hearts, Abba, Father, in intimacy to God. 
the Holy Spirit cries out in the fullness of his eternal relationship with the Father as the third person of the Trinity and now also enables us to cry out in all of the extremity of our need, not into some black hole, but to a Father who loves us and receives us in the merit of his Son, Jesus Christ. The influence of the Spirit in your lives, which result is assurance of faith, according to Romans 8. The Spirit's indwelling brings assurance of faith. It brings a new confidence that this God from whom you were once estranged because of his holiness and because of our sin and guilt and unholiness, that we now have confidence to know that he indeed is a tender and loving father who wants us to come into his presence, who receives us and accepts us and longs for us to come into his presence in prayer even more than you and I want to come. I've mentioned to you before my friend Roger Greenway. He was a Christian reform missionary and also a teacher and a seminary professor. When he and his wife were missionaries in Mexico, they adopted a child, a little girl. As I recall, she was just washed up on the shore. They found her, adopted this little girl into her family. And you can imagine that a little girl like this might not immediately understand how to respond or even identify what love is all about. It took time. And Dr. Greenway says that he remembers very, I've actually heard him tell this story, he remembers very, very clearly the day that his little daughter came to him and said, Daddy, will you help me tie my shoelaces? And he knew that there was a new confidence that had arisen in her heart as a result of the love that he and his family had consistently shown to this little girl. Well, it's that way with us. We come into the family of God, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and as we learn who God is and we know that he is our Father in heaven, the confidence begins to grow and to build. And we come into his presence and we find ourselves one day saying, will you tie my shoelaces? We find ourselves actually speaking to God with intimacy and with freedom and understanding that he does not reject me, he does accept me in his son, and that I really am the son or the daughter that he tells me that I am in sacred scripture. The Holy Spirit is the source of our confidence. Didn't Jesus say in John 14, I will not leave you orphans, I will send my spirit? But not only that, you also have a new inheritance. Our inheritance was, as a child of wrath, God's infinite displeasure and judgment. But according to the text, we have a new inheritance. In verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You have a new inheritance. Romans 8 says we are joint heirs with Christ, the adopted son of a Roman patrician, held patrician rank, no matter how low his birth had been. He may have been taken from the gutters of Rome, no matter. He was a patrician now. No matter what your background, no matter 
how sinful your life had been, no matter how deeply estranged from God you were, you are a prince or a princess of God. You are a son, a daughter of God with an undefiled, unfading inheritance that is reserved for you in heaven and you are reserved for it. God promises you in the midst of this fallen world, despite the stresses and strains of life and the difficulties that we experience, that you have as a son of God an inheritance that no one can take away. Not only that, we have a new liberty, a new liberty in Christ as the result of our adoption. Now, the Westminster Confession helps us to understand the biblical data here. I'm reading from chapter 12 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says this. By the way, the Westminster Confession is unique among confessions in that it has its own chapter on adoption. It says this. All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, and enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. How can you sit still when you hear that that is what adoption means? Then I move in our confession of faith to chapter 20, the first paragraph that speaks of the liberty that we have as the result of being sons and daughters of God. And it is described in this way. Are you ready for this? See if you can keep keeping your seats. This is so great. The Confession of Faith summarizes what the Bible teaches about the liberty that we have as adopted children of God in this way. What is that liberty? The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, and from the evil afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, and also in their free access to God, and their yielding obedience unto Him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind all which were common also to believers under the law, but under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected, and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace, and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. Whoa! (laughs) That's your liberty. As a child of God. But not only that. You, as a child of God, have a new security. If you are God's child, nothing can unchild you. A former Russian citizen who is now a citizen of the United States. He was there. He was under condemnation. The government was condemning him. Now he is a citizen of this country. 
He lives here. He doesn't care if the Russian government condemns him because he doesn't live there anymore. That's the way it is with you. Once you were a part of the dominion of darkness, now you have been translated into the kingdom of God's own dear son. This liberty of sons is the antidote to living in fear. Not only that, we have a new access. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 18 is a good example of this. Just the next chapter over. For through him we have access, we both, that is Jew and Gentile Christians, both have access in one spirit to the Father. I'll stress that again in a moment. And then, at least one other privilege should be mentioned. You as a Christian now have the privilege of a father who administers in your life loving discipline. Loving discipline. Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 11. Why don't we turn there? Hebrews chapter 12, 3 and following, says this, Consider him, this is Hebrews 12, 3, Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to this father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You are privileged because the Father administers discipline in our lives. God will not allow, God will not allow true believers to live like hell and then go to heaven. He will work in our hearts by discipline to make us to be godly people. Fourth thing as we come back to Ephesians 1, the praise due to God for adoption. Will you notice with me verses 5 and 6 again? Ephesians 1, 5, In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in union with, in the Beloved. To the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 12, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Verse 14, The Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Glory. 
He is certainly concerned that we understand that all of this is for the praise of His glory. He showers grace on us. How can we not help but live in praise of Him? Do you remember such verses as these in the Old Testament? Isaiah 62, verse 7. He establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the whole earth. Deuteronomy 26, 19. He has declared that He will set you in praise, fame, and honor high above all the nations. Jeremiah 13, 11. To be my people for my renown and praise and honor. So what was once Israel's privilege is now our privilege, the church formed for himself to declare his praise, and so we preach the gospel to the nations, for we are a chosen generation and a people set aside for his grace that we might be for the renown and praise of his glory in the earth. Your life and mine, as adopted children of God, should more and more increasingly, as God sanctifies our hearts, be set upon the one theme and goal of bringing glory to God in all things, at all times, in my public life, in my private life, that in all things He might have the preeminence. That's the goal. And that's what he's doing in the lives of his adopted children. Let me bring this to conclusion. That doesn't mean we're done. (laughs) Let me take one privilege that we've mentioned. And that privilege is the privilege of access. Because you are a son, a daughter of God, you can actually go into the presence of God and fellowship and commune with the triune God because you have been adopted into his family. Why not make use of this new access in a fresher, more significant way than perhaps you have been? Why not make use of this new access, the new boldness to commune with God in prayer, much often with freedom and consistency, with joy and with exaltation? Your prayers are only accepted and only heard because your great intercessor, Jesus Christ, with whom you are in union, takes your prayers and presents them in perfection to his Father. And Christian, if you say, I am such a sinner... How can I come consistently and faithfully into the presence of this holy God? Remember, the throne of grace is for sinners. Your boldness is not because of anything in you, but because of your union with Jesus. The foundation of your boldness before the throne of grace is Christ and his merit alone. As Robert Trail put it, there is more of grace in the promise than there can be of sin and misery in the man that pleads it. And in the event that for some reason you're not hearing it, there is more of grace in the promise than there can be of sin and misery in the man that pleads it. There is greater grace in the promise of God to receive and accept you when you come into His presence than there is sin in the heart of the believer 
who would receive that promise. And so, adopted child of God, come. Come freely, come boldly, come in union with Christ, come with your new name upon you, out of your new relationship with God and His people, from the depths of God's mercy and your new nature, with the new spirit who indwells you, in the fullness of your new inheritance, in unshakable security, with liberty and free grace, why don't you come boldly, daily, regularly, often, to the throne of grace and commune with the Father who adopted you into his family through the shed blood of his Son? Why don't you? Have you been? Will you? Will you change? Will you repent? Will you believe? Will you take upon yourself this great privilege that is yours if you have not been so doing as you ought as a Christian? What a privilege that we can commune with the true and the living God. So I conclude with the words of John Newton, that great sinner saved by grace, who said, Lord, I approach thy mercy seat where thou dost answer prayer. There humbly fall before thy feet, for none can perish there. Thy promise is my only plea. With this I venture nigh. Thou callest burdened souls to thee, and such, O Lord, am I. Bowed down beneath a load of sin by Satan sorely pressed. By war without and fears within I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield, my hiding place, that sheltered near thy side. I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.